College Student Success Podcast, podcast where college students and faculty come together to talk about mental health, wellness, mentorship, and entrepreneurship. Together, we set and achieve goals for ourselves to get us where we want to be. I'm your host, Derek Malenzak, and this is episode 88 of the podcast. And this is, uh, what, week 14 of the semester? Wow. We are getting down to the wire to the end of the semester and the end of the year and the end of this round of the podcast. And uh, hello, everyone. Happy to be here. Um, I am going to be talking about the future of mental health services today uh, and treatment and the way I see things. And it'll be a little bit of a, a speculation type of episode. Um, something that just kind of came to me in the middle of the week last week where I was like, I want to do this. And I started jotting down some thoughts that I've had just, you know, that I've had for a while about where I see the direction going. And I found an article, uh, from NIMH because I wanted to kind of compare to, you know, somebody else and see like if there were things that were in common with the lists that I made with the, the, the lists that were out there on the internet. Uh, or if I, you know, if I was totally off, uh, it turns out I, I hit on a lot of them and there were a couple others that I just missed, but I agree with. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. I'm going to do a little speculation. Um, and I'm going to link to this article, uh, from NIMH. It's not like a research article. It's just kind of a general, you know, new, more newsy type of article. So, uh, before we get into that, uh, some quick housekeeping. So as I mentioned, it's week 14 of the semester, uh, which means next week will be our last podcast for a little bit. I'm going to be taking a break through the holiday season, spend time with family, rest, recharge, come back in 2018 and get ready to kill it again. (laughs) Uh, so Next week's episode will be sort of a wrap-up, so we will do a final check-in on our goals, and I'm going to have some announcements for the podcast, um, you know, some changes for it next year that I'll want to discuss and kind of talk about um, and sort of discuss the impetus. So uh, we'll be closing a little bit of a chapter to uh, to the podcast next week, but um, new chapters ready to begin in 2018. So stay tuned for more info on that next week. Um, we won't have a, a, like a topic topic. It will be mainly, you know, as I've done in the past, just a, a more of a wrap-up show. Today, though, we will be having a topic. And so I'm calling today's episode The Future of Mental Health Services and Treatment. Uh, So I'll speculate a little bit on the future of college as well, but um, I've done that a little bit in the past, and it's not something that I'm necessarily less certain of. It's just that uh, I think that once you see some of these trends, you might be able to link these to how colleges might change in the future. So maybe I'll talk a little bit about how I see, you know, higher ed changing uh, at the end of this, but really want to focus on mental health. All right. So one of the first things, and I think this is what prompted me to to record this episode, is was hearing somewhat of a, I guess it was a rumor last week. Um, so there's been big changes in New Jersey. And I know many, many other states as well. 
um, as they've shifted to what they call like um, you know managed care or, or a fee for service type of model of um, billing the government you know Medicaid for services rendered. And this has had a huge impact on mental health services and substance abuse services in particular. Um, so there used to be, in the olden days, um, a lot of these programs, um, residential programs, um, partial care, you know, day treatment type of programs, uh, they would sort of get, in a lot of cases, like a flat rate based on attendance, right? So if somebody got, you know, was with their program for, you know, X number of days in the month, Medicaid would pay, you know, X number of dollars. And what they've moved to is a fee-for-service. So you provide a service, and then you charge a fee for it, and then Medicaid will reimburse you. Uh, so you, it's a lot more documentation. Uh, and in the end, it works out to a lot less revenue. Um, so community mental health agencies and substance abuse agencies have been, you know, they fought it for a long time. Didn't happen in terms of them uh winning uh and then they, they they spent a long time you know kind of training agencies and enacting different um you know transition periods and stuff and it's finally i guess started to roll and you know what i'm hearing is um already you know big layoffs in the community mental health field uh so i only heard it in particular to one agency um, but I have to imagine if it's if it's one agency that other agencies are feeling the pinch as well. And so that does not really bode well for community mental health services in the future. Um, that's troublesome, you know. Uh, it's troublesome for, you know, the future of my department. <laughs> um, you know, as far as, you know, we want to be training people. And it's troublesome for the for the users, right? The people that are going to be receiving services that are not there from professionals, at least. So this is a problem. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, me speculating, I believe in the end, people will get end up with nationalized health care in some way, shape, or form in this country. And from there, I can't even begin to speculate on how that would have an effect on mental health care. But I, I think we need to probably get to that point before we see, you know, some marked or drastic changes, unfortunately. So um, I wanted to start off with that one because that's like the bad news of, you know, people that um, need services in New Jersey, you know, I know it's actually not as bad as in like more rural areas where it's ridiculous how how few um, providers there are uh, because they simply just can't afford it. Um, and you know, you, you hear of these like you know very rural places that have you know uh, two psychiatrists for the entire county, and it's like the county is you know the size of Delaware or something like that. So um, I, I even, you know, am grateful for, you know, the services, the funding, and the options that we have in New Jersey compared to other places. I know it could be a lot worse. Um, so that's the bad news. <laughs> uh, so what is the good news? So that's going to happen. What is going to come out of that or what is already starting to come out of that? Uh, so there's two main things that I'm going to talk about. Um you know, 
I think when people talk about like the future of, you know, um, medical treatment in general, not even just limiting it to mental health treatment, you know, a lot of people will point to technology, right? Um, oh, we got new apps and apps are going to do this and apps are going to do that. And yeah, you're probably right, but that's not really the way I want to frame the discussion. Like, just because you have an app doesn't mean that it's going to lead to better outcomes. Like, I'm going to talk about really the trends or the things that will necessitate these apps being created, used, or deployed more efficiently. So the two major areas are, well, the first one I'm going to talk about, I'll, I'll talk, I'll stay in technology for a second, is going to be telecounseling, telepsychiatry, um, basically not having to go to a doctor's office in order to get services or treatment. And uh, that will be very, very helpful in a lot of cases. I had uh, Kat Glick on uh, a number of episodes ago from Talkspace. Uh, You could probably easily find that by just putting Talkspace into the College Student Success Podcast search engine there. Uh, I will link to it in the show notes because it was a good episode, and that was like my first real delve into tele-counseling is really what what Talkspace is. This idea that you can basically, instead of going to somebody's office, talk with them on the phone, email with them, text with them, and get support that way. So that's already started, and um, from what I've heard of people that have used it, not a lot. I mean, the early adopters, though, um, seem to have very, very good things to say about it, as well as the early adopter professionals that that are using it. So I, if I were in need of services, this is really an area I would be looking into because it's just not only is it convenient, you don't have to go somewhere, um, but it's so much more accessible. Like, if you think about how traditional therapy works now, you know, an hour a week, you know, um, so what's going on? How are you getting help the rest of the hours? Um, you know, supposedly you should be working on, you know, developing skills, strategies to kind of cope, manage, and, you know, the next time you, you learn more. Um, but this really, I think, makes it much more user-friendly in that you can get the help on demand. And think about it, right? Let's say you're working on some kind of strategy, um, meditation, you know, to take one from last week, uh, last week's episode. So let's say you've talked with your, your therapist and you both have decided that you would benefit from, you know, practicing meditation in times of, um, bad anxiety, right? So you talk about this in your session and you come up with a plan and maybe you, there's a few sessions where you work through learning the basics, figuring out when it's going to help, you know, deploying it, you know, coming up with a plan. So first major anxiety provoking time, oh, miraculously doesn't happen in your session with your therapist. It's going to happen when you least expect it. And so you're going to try your meditation and hopefully it's going to work. But what if it doesn't? What if you could just text your counselor or your therapist at that point and be like, I'm struggling here. Is there something I'm doing wrong? And they could kind of work with you in the moment to correct what's going on. I think that is a huge potential because that's really, I think, what is was missing for a lot of people is that like the environment, the support in the environment that you're 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 having trouble with, right? So in the environment of you know the couch of your your therapist, everything's fine, right? You probably feel somewhat comforted because they're there, but when you're out in the big bad scary real world, and I mean that literally, you know, I don't mean that facetiously. I you know when things get tough. Um, 
it, it's it would be nice to be able to just have somebody to check in and, and you know have them be able to, to text back or phone call and be like yeah this is you're doing the right thing or why don't you try it this way or even if it's just a little like cheerleading at that point huge potential uh, and then to take that a step further telepsychiatry so the fact that you don't have to go to your 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 psychiatrist to get medication um, or any other kind of um, script for you know day treatment any kind of services that where you would need like a referral uh, huge, right? Not only makes it more convenient for the person that's getting the services, but I would imagine it's got to help for the psychiatrist, psychologists themselves in being working more efficiently, being more productive, and therefore being able to see more people, or maybe you see the same people but have a higher quality of care. So I'm very, very encouraged by the promise that telepsychiatry and tele therapy, counseling, whatever you want to call it, holds for us. Um, so the other major area that I see a huge um, trend starting already, but it's kind of come in a big way, is peer services. So services, you know, mental health counseling uh, and support done by people that are in recovery themselves for mental health issues or substance abuse issues. This is big in the substance abuse movement, right? Uh, a lot of people get clean and sober and decide, you know, they were perhaps, you know, perhaps that was a symptom of their, their you know, something going on in their life like having no direction, right? I see this a lot, you know, people in college maybe not really feeling their major or maybe they're not in college, or, you know, because they don't know what they want to do and they're directionless and end up, you know, using drugs and alcohol, which exacerbates the problem. It's not going to help you figure out, you know, your career path. But you get clean and you realize like, oh, I, I think I want to help other people do this, you know, find their path. Um, so peers, people, and I use the term peer to say people like you in recovery, um, is, they, have a, they have that lived experience. They know what it's like myself as a recovering alcoholic. I could talk to somebody else that's um, in the midst of, you know, full-blown alcoholism, and I could say, like, hey, man, I, I've been there. And it would actually mean something because I have. Um, whereas a professional that would not necessarily have that lived experience has never been an alcoholic, they, may, they can't say that truthfully. And so, you know, they can certainly do other things to help and I'm not discrediting professionals, but I'm saying peers have a leg up on that in that way. Uh, so we already know that. Um, so why do I think it's going to continue or get stronger? Well, one reason is because of that issue with the fee-for-service model kind of taking hold in America. Um, in the fact that I don't think we're going to be able to add more professionals to the field Um Necessarily at the rate that we're going to need them. Uh, so why peers? Well, I think that we're we're going to need some population or some entity to fill that vacuum, right? So I think these basically these trends are going to continue, right? <clears throat> we're going to continue to see fee for service models implemented across the country. This is going to continue to squeeze mental health and substance abuse provider agencies 
which is going to have you know put downward pressure on them, and so they're not going to be able to grow, and so they might collapse or they might just kind of stay the status quo. But what is also going to continue, in my opinion, mental health problems are going to continue to happen. Right, people are going to continue to get diagnosed. <clears throat> Um, substance abuse issues are going to continue, and um, maybe I'm a little cynical, but I, I believe they're going to get worse again before they get better. I think we're going to see more and worse depression, anxiety, um, opiate use. You know, we all know that it's skyrocketing. It's going to get worse. I'm sorry to say. Um, so, peers, I think, will fill that void because. There will be the the economy will be such that they will be needed, uh, and there we will find a place for them. Um, there is sort of an economic aspect of it too, you know. Um, typically, and I'm not very proud to report this, you know, peers will work um, cheaper. Uh, you know, they they often you know are at if they have like a designated salary. I don't know if maybe it's not this way anymore. They, uh, you know, were at a lower salary. It should not be, especially if they have, you know, the same job responsibilities as everyone else. So I think that they're making gains in that. Um, but they're seeing, you know, um, and my experience has been the peers that are in recovery and, and have a good grasp of their recovery and their coping skills that they need don't seem to be burned out, you know, as much as the professional in my experience, and that's just anecdotal. I don't have any evidence. Um, so I was in a training uh, almost about a year ago, maybe a little over a year ago, and I was talking with the trainer afterwards, and we were talking about how out of the, you know, it was like 25 people in this training, you're going to have your, your couple of people that are like really into it and, you know, pay attention and participate and then you're going to have some that, you know, go through the motions and then you're going to have your, your certain group that just kind of are tuned out. That's just the way it is in these community mental health trainings. And that's what I was providing. And, and we were noting that the people that were just like really into the training, got a lot out of it, asked questions, participated, just like killed it. They were awesome. Were all the peers, all the people in recovery, like were into the stuff. And the topic was like, you know, skill building and the values and principles of psychiatric rehabilitation. And the trainer was saying, I, I just it's, it's every training I'm in. The peers are the ones invested. They care. They want to learn. They want the info. Uh, and. You know, I think that that's going to continue. And that was one of those moments where I was like, wow, I look back and I didn't realize it at the time, but she was right. And that was only a year ago and it's only gotten stronger. I think there's going to be huge opportunities for people in recovery to get these positions. You know, I've talked in the past how like we've had uh, things in our department where it's like you actually need that experience in order to get this position. Like it gives you a leg up. I talked about it in uh, the episode with the two guys who did the movie, you know, kind of how you can leverage your disability in order to kind of gain an advantage over somebody that doesn't have one. And that was like how they talked about, you know, one of them was talking about getting a, their own dorm room, you know, and it's like, hey, you know, I worked it and it, it helped, it worked for me. And I was like, good for you. Um, so if you're in recovery and you're thinking about helping others, um, I think there's a, a promising, you know, future and career there. 
I think that there's going to be more like certifications and licensure, maybe not licensure. I don't know, but there's definitely some certifications, pure, pure certifications and something I'm going to get to as well, wellness coaching. Uh, so, so that's what I'll say about peers. And then I'm going to move towards wellness. Now, I think we're going to continue to see this push towards wellness, you know, towards this whole body uh, looking at, you know, total health. You know, in, in my world, we use eight dimensions, however many dimensions you want to measure wellness in. I, I don't care. Um, but realizing that it is multidimensional and that your spiritual wellness is just as important as your emotional wellness. We're going to continue to see evidence, I think, come out that supports this model. And so what will it be, be replacing? It will be replacing, continue to replace the medical model, in my opinion. Medical model is that idea that, you know, somebody comes in, has a deficit, you know, a problem. The, the, medic, the medical professional says, you know, oh, because of these symptoms, I'm going to do this treatment and it's going to cure the symptoms and you're going to get better. It really doesn't look at um, skill building, straight, it's not strengths focused, it's not person centered, you know, uh, and it actually works fairly well for the, the medical world, you know, the physical health world. You know, if you figure something like, you know, you go into the doctor with symptoms of a, a common cold, um, you're going to, you know, you want to treat those symptoms, you know, get to the root of the problem, call it, you know, and then there's also, you know, prevention. So it actually works fairly well. Uh, but for mental health, which is uh, less, you're, you're less able to operationally define exactly the true cause, or the epidemiology of it, uh, it requires a different approach. And I think looking at thing, you know, people holistically with this sort of total wellness ideal uh, is going to be the continue to be the way that we move towards. Uh, so what does that mean? Well, I think we'll see the linking of physical health data with uh, mental health, you know, symptoms, and that will lead towards really interesting research and outcomes. And we'll do this with smartphones primarily, right? So the fact that you have this like miniature computer in your pocket, you know, almost everybody does, that is capable of so much. Um, I would suggest you just start tracking what you can. Uh, in terms of your your body, right? Track your sleep. Uh, the the things that are easy, right? Tracking your food is is tough because you got to enter everything in, right? So that's for somebody that would be really committed or have a goal related to that. But it's easy to just turn on the sleep, you know, sleep counter or download a free app and just turn it on and, and forget about it, right? Uh, it's easy to turn on the step counter, you know, and they're probably not super accurate, you know, if you're not. You don't have your phone in your pocket. You're probably not counting your steps, right? But if you could turn those things on, you know, whatever the, the health meters are, if there's one that tracks your heart rate or something, people that have, you know, these watches, Apple Watch or whatever comparable plan for, you know, PCs, you know, turn all that shit on. <laughs> uh, track those things because even if you don't need the information now, because when you when you are struggling, you know, and you can go to the doctor, you might have months or even, you know, potentially years worth of data that you could download and look at and be like, whoa, you know, look at this change that happened over time that you may not have even noticed. So this is not something I'm actually doing. I actually am, am giving this advice to myself as well. So if you think about it, we're going to learn all this stuff 
with health tracking, with these fitness apps, you know, um, with these smartphone apps, uh, with these watches, uh, and we're going to be able to learn so much about how our bodies work in response to mental health stressors, right? Depression, anxiety, psychosis, and whatnot. And I think it's going to lead to some great breakthroughs and outcomes. Uh, so that's sort of how I see the, you know, the apps and stuff fitting in. It's not, not, it's not like we're going to build apps and then we're going to learn something. It's like we're going to figure out, you know, something and then we're going to build to, to and use to further that. So um, that to me is all in the, the realm of wellness because it's linking this physical health stuff, you know, how much we sleep, how much activity we have during the day, you know, how much we are on our smartphones, you know, if you could track that, and I'm sure there's ways to do it, you know, that would probably be a good indicator as well for certain um, mental health outcomes that you're looking to prevent or minimize. Uh, And then, so how will we really impart wellness on others? Uh, The model that's really in, in fashion now is this idea of wellness coaching. Um, and wellness coaching, you think of a, a coach, right? A coach is different than a therapist or a counselor. Uh, a coach is different than a mentor. So I don't really, I'm not going to get into exactly what it is, but every, I think most people can identify what a coach does, right? A coach is there to instruct and a coach is there to uh, motivate you know, and, uh, you know, sort of correct on the fly, um, and is there, you know, for support. So if we think about somebody that is assigned or or linked with a wellness coach, that person is going to coach them through, you know, setting a wellness goal and working through the steps to achieve that goal. So that's, I think, where we're going to continue to head. There's a lot of wellness programs, you know, in employers, you know, are, are embracing this, right, and offering gym memberships and, different credits for you to, you know, engage in healthy activities because they've started to realize that a healthy employee is a more productive employee. All that is going to continue. Uh, next, I'm going to talk about something that I'm, I'm really trying to do here, I guess. This is my attempt at uh, what I call illness self-management. Uh, this idea that you can, you don't need a professional, that you can kind of work through uh managing an illness on your own uh, and maybe not be curing it so, you know like you said we don't cure mental illness um, we recover from it so I think we're going to continue to see these types of empowering models where we don't necessarily rely on a, on a professional uh, to help us day to day or week to week the professional would or maybe the professional is in doing it in conjunction with peers, or maybe it's peers do, developing, you know, illness self-management strategies, right? So, like, think of, like, uh, a manual that's, like, how to, you know, and it can't be, like, how to beat depression, but it's going to be, like, some element of it, you know, how to manage day-to-day negative self-thoughts or something. And it's going to take you through, like, uh, some kind of, like, self-assessment, you know, where you assess yourself on a, some sort of scale and figure out, okay, my struggles are you're here, here, and here. You know, here are my strengths. Uh, so they'll definitely have a strengths focus and then some sort of goal setting, personal goal setting, and then teaching you the strategies to manage 
and work towards that goal. And there might, there's going to be a professional or a peer in, in some cases. There's going to be some sort of consultant, I think, because everybody, I think, needs that. It was a big thing I learned when doing my, um, my online class uh, was that, like, you can't just give an online class and then walk away. You know, people need the ongoing support, not only to get, get through tough things, but also to get them through the course to be like, oh, there's somebody there invested in seeing me finish. So illness self-management to me in the mental health world isn't quite hit its time yet. <laughs> uh, it, it's, I think it's, it's coming. You know, it's a little ahead of its time. Um, or maybe it's not. I don't know. That might be something where it's just too difficult uh, to do on one's own. Uh, maybe. But I think for certain, like, more milder cases or, you know, environmental-specific type of situations, uh, that illness, illness self-management holds a great deal of promise. Um, so those were the ones I had come up with on my own. <laughs> and then I went to good old Google and uh, found an article from NIMH, National Institute of Mental Health, which is entitled Technology and the Future of Mental Health Treatment. And so they talk about, they start off talking about mental health apps. Um, so that's why I was like, I don't really want to come from the, like there's going to be more apps as the trend is. There's going to be some sort of trend or problem that develops and then there's going to be technology to come and solve or mitigate that. Uh, so they talk about technology in general then they talk about self-management apps. That was what I was just talking about. They say self-management means that the user puts information into the app so the app can provide feedback. For example, the user might set up medication reminders or use the app to develop tools for managing stress, anxiety, or sleep problems. Some software can use additional equipment to track heart rate, breathing patterns, blood pressure, etc., and may help the user track progress and receive feedback. So that's a self-management app, you know, using technology to be able to kind of work. You know, I'd identified an issue after some sort of self-assessment. And uh, with this data now, I'm going to work towards a solution pretty much on my own, you know, and only consulting with an expert, whether that be a peer, somebody that's, in, you know, experiencing the issue themselves or from a professional uh, as needed. So the other ones that I missed, I can't believe I missed this one, but, um, you know, apps they talk about, but, it, you know, it could be, you know, any kind of thing for improving thinking skills, cognitive remediation. I don't know how I could have missed that one um, because that's what I did for three years um, in when I started working with Rutgers. So how could I have missed it? I do believe it holds tremendous promise. Um, a site like Lumosity. I would love to just be able to like hack into their site and, and look at their data and see like how it, it has helped people or not. Um, but I think cognitive remediation is, is a great, it's a great uh, tool and stay tuned for next week's episode because I'm going to have part of uh, my announcement will relate a little, a little bit to CogRem. So that's one more thing that I think you will continue to see more of cognitive remediation or changing the way you, you think uh, and do it in a, um, in a, in a comp compensatory way, compensating for some kind of deficit with thinking or as a restorative, you know, really kind of drilling and, and that would be like more like an exercise program for your brain um, to get you thinking more clearly, being able to plan better, 
focus your attention better. Um, these are the types of things that uh, that cognitive remediation would would be a big help with. Uh, and then the last one, I have shared decision making. And this is one that we've discussed on a few different podcasts over the years, um, most notably in the ECT one from this semester, uh, and also with uh, Pat Deegan in the past, uh, and Ellen Sachs. Uh, We've all touched on either supported or shared decision-making, this idea that it's not the doctor who's in control. Um, You are in control, and you're working with the doctor in a partnership to come up with the best solution for you. And you will involve whomever you feel is, is a good support to help you better make that decision, whether that be family um, or friends or significant others or whatnot. So I think you will see this more. Um, you're going to see less generalists. <laughs> you know. So we talked about, well, we haven't talked about, but the news has talked about how like we're seeing less and less um, general practitioners come out in, in the medical field. Nobody wants to be a GP anymore, you know, just the, the boring old medical doctor or pediatrician. They all want to be, go into specializations, right? You know, oncology or dermatology or cardiology, um, because that's where the money is and that's where the prestige is. Uh, and so if this trend continues, there's going to be less and less doctors. Uh, so I think it, the, the doctors that will need that will still be there (laughs) will probably need to engage in this um to you know get their needs met um you will see i think a lot of nurse practitioners uh, step in to fill that void that's already happening and they will use the same shared decision making principles i think that doctors use uh, and psychiatrists should be using to you know best support the people that they are working with so so that is my list um, for your home exercise this week. Investigate one of these that you think will help you in your recovery moving forward. Um, you know, maybe check out the app store with the phone kind of uh, platform that you have and see what's available free or really low cost that you didn't even realize now that you can track. <laughs> Um, set up some of these like ongoing um, data capture things on your phone and just kind of forget about them until you need them. Uh, so do take some kind of proactive step to learn a little bit more about um, the cutting edge of mental health services that might be in your community too. You know, if you um, need to look into looking for a new practitioner or, you know, in response to some of the stuff I mentioned early on. Overall, I am optimistic Uh, I think that, again, sadly, I think things might get a little worse before they get better uh, from a uh, community landscape. But I think that, you know, we need bad times in a sense to um, inspire us to innovate uh, or embrace those innovations. Um, Sad to say, I think it's just human nature. You know, Uh, we can only kick the can down the road uh, long enough before we actually have to, you know, deal with some problems. Uh, And I'm not talking about individual problems. I'm talking about kind of these are more societal. Um, So uh, when we do, when we are forced to confront them, I think that some of the things that will come out of that are going to be extremely amazing and promising. And I want to be there. I want to be on the the forefront and I want to be on the cutting edge offering these things, you know, 
that's why I'm, I'm doing this podcast, you know, because I, this is something that's, I feel like kind of innovative in a way that in an illness self-management way. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to empower people to realize like they don't need a, a professional in a, in a lot of cases. Um, not all, but in a lot. And I'm not saying ditch your, your practitioners out there. I'm saying see what else is out there that you haven't considered. Tap into peer services, self-help. Uh, and some of this technology that might be available to you to better understand how your body works. So with that, hope you guys got something out of it. I really enjoyed doing this episode. Um, I like the ones where I just kind of come up with something uh, where I'm like, oh, I'm going to do an episode of that. It just kind of flows. It comes out of me. So hope you enjoyed. Uh, If you have any feedback, please feel free to reach out. You know, Twitter, Facebook, email, whatever. Love hearing from you guys. And have a, uh, a great week of studying, I guess, heading into finals week. And I will be back at you next week for one more episode before, uh, before the new year. Take care, guys. Peace.